0: If you really want to increase your rate of innovation, you need to decrease the chances of failure or the risk for failure. Doing this this way, like fast and secure, is a way to reduce the failure and increase speed and therefore innovation. And I hope folks understand that because in the times that we live in, it's super critical to outpace your competition is to innovate fast and safe.
1: From seven CTOs, my name is Etienne de Bruin, and you're in the CTO studio. Today in the CTO studio, we dig into a topic that is near and dear to my heart, feature flags. Have you ever dreamt about pushes to production that don't cause trauma for your engineering teams? Or how about more harmony between product and engineering when it comes to releasing features? Have you considered moving away from Git Flow towards trunk-based development? This conversation with Pato, CTO, and co-founder at Split.io is for you. Enjoy. Pato, welcome to the CTO studio. Thank you, Etienne. Good to be
0: here. Thank you for giving me the opportunity.
1: So Patricio, Patricio or Patricio or what? Or if you ask me, I would suggest Patricio. 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 We were just talking about difficulties in pronouncing our names. So what is your Starbucks name? I usually go by Pat or Patrick.
0: Pat. Pat. They know how to spell Patricia with an A. That's a female version of my name, but you know, I take that too.
1: I have to go with Stephen. And if they ask me if it's with a V or a PH, then I just leave. I'm like, I don't need coffee. I don't need anything today. It's <laughs> just getting too complex huh? <laughs> Patricio is the co-founder and CTO of Split. Prior to founding Split, you spent time at Relate IQ, which I was a user of Relate IQ. It was a really awesome, awesome tool. Born and raised in Argentina and moved to the US in 2007. So super jazz to have you on the show. I reached out to you because so many of our CTOs use Split and I was very surprised when at the other end of the newsletter, there was a reply like, yeah, who are you and what do you want? That's so great to hear. I'm, I'm flattered.
0: I also I didn't know, maybe you told me last time, but I didn't know that I used RelateIQ. It was a great product.
1: Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. It was a new, maybe just tell people what the tool did. Yeah, of course. So RelateIQ,
0: I was one well, fortunate to join the company at a very, very early stage. I was a fourth, fifth employee. We build a smart CRM, and when I say "smart," it's because it was innovative at the time. The fact that you and I had a communication via SMS or an email, you already we crawled those media inputs and became kind of an element in the relationship, and as any CRM that used to manage relationship between you and customers or anybody. It was like magic. If I add your name there, I would bring in all the history of communication and we even explore a little bit of what we can do with that signal. It worked really well for the time. It was very innovative. The best thing you had was Salesforce, but didn't have any of those capabilities.
1: Yeah. And that was literally how it felt. It felt like magic. It was, was it a Google Chrome extension? Right. Yeah. We, we had no. a Chrome
0: extension. Add extra features there, but yeah, everything yeah. was in the flow with you. Be able to see when people open your emails and add people to relationship from the browser itself. It was truly a great experience, and I had a lot of fun building it.
1: To be yeah, and to. so for people who get acquired or are considering getting acquired, once Relate IQ was acquired by Salesforce, did you move with the app? Did you bounce out, or what did you do? You no, know, we stayed. When I say we, me and my co-founders,
0: many of us, the vast majority of the that group stayed. It was a great acquisition. They, they kept us alone for at least one to two years. We kept innovating within the small group that we had. We even kept our offices. And I believe that even when I left and things became more merged with Salesforce, they, they kept the offices and the, the experience. For what I heard at the time, it was one of, good smooth acquisition not a lot of attrition we just ha- keep on having fun after that.
1: just give us a quick overview and then from there you went to data stacks you no know, data stacks was
0: before and for those that don't know the name they were the company behind Apache Cassandra distributed key value data store so that was first and then IQ and transition with Salesforce and then it was time to, to take the risk again and come back to the grind And you went to Google, right? Didn't you? That was at the beginning. So Google, I came to the States. and uh, Okay.
1: Okay. So let's talk about Split. When I reached out to you, I explained to you how we look at assessing CTOs and their organizations. And one of the first things we look at is how are they managing their code base? Whether you're a highly scaled organization or whether you're just starting the fundamental building block, the value that you've created is obviously through the code that you've written. And so how are you coding it? What are the best practices around that? And of course, if you've read Accelerate, you understand that trunk-based development or the DevOps reports, like that is the way to go. And of course, with trunk-based development comes feature flags. And this is how Split came into my world, where, you know, as I was assessing CTOs, it was either split or launched darkly or some custom package that people were using. And so I would love for us to chat about the fundamentals of updating code in a way that is empowering teams. And what we spoke about when we met each other was the idea that it not only empowers engineering teams, it empowers Anybody in the company, which I thought was a funny story that you should tell us. And so I'd love to talk about the fundamentals of trunk based development and feature flagging. I'd also love to talk a little bit about your CTO journey and how you started Split. Maybe it's one and the same story for you, but tell me a little bit about why you decided to create Split. The reverse order makes
0: sense and will transition naturally, and can tell you the, the issues we run into. Related IQ and how we solved it, it will blend in the main topic that you want to discuss. So, going back in time at the Related IQ era, I mentioned to you earlier that we've we hired a lot of people too quickly. One, kudos to the company that we had the ability to do that. But one of the things that happened to us is that we were writing too much code too fast without the proper processes. And the biggest consequences, and I would say, I'm lucky that that happened because otherwise I would not be doing this, was every time they would push the production, we just broke a lot of things. And the reason is because processes did not mature or evolve at the same rate that we hire people. The consequence of that was push pushed to production, broke stuff, customers complained, got support tickets through customer success, and they came back to us through the handoff of tickets to engineering. And long story short, it slowed us down. So then a bunch of us go in the room and say, how do we solve this? One person said, well, we hire more people, but that was really what caused the problems in the first place. When we hired more managers, who later became my co-founder, said to me that, well, we should build an experimentation platform. So he said it with those words. To be honest, I didn't understand what he meant at the time. Lucky like, you enough that he was very stubborn and kept on insisting on the idea. At some point, I said, well, explain it to me. And what it was is really was a feature flagging tool with later capabilities for A-B testing. What that feature flagging tool allowed us was to have an extra shot in production, but pretty much separate a push, the act of a pushing code from releasing code. So that's probably the biggest takeaway here. Because in the, before that, I said you release a production, then everybody finds a bug. When you can disassociate the two concepts, you can push a production a thousand times an hour if you wanted to, as long as the thing that you are, the change you're introducing is behind a feature flag, or feature toggle, how people know it, and then you can release whenever you want. You can expose that functionality that is protected through a feature flag whenever you want and to whoever you want. And then you get into, okay, well, maybe I can release it for myself because I wrote the code. Yeah, sure, you can do that. And then you release it to your own team, to your squad. And then from there, you go to, fully to the company first. And if you're creative, you can release that to sort set of like alpha customers, friendly customers that are more willing to try new things and tolerate defects. And from there you can ramp. So that's what we did. And it changed everything for us. People became so accustomed to it. There was no other way that you can release software that wasn't through a feature flag. Because the consequence of that was also that if you made a mistake, we use the word kill, you, you kill a flag, or revert the flag, or turn off a flag. And that started influencing another metric that we can touch base later on that was the, the median time to, to recover to reaction. So that's how we go into this. You know, after the acquisition, we figured that people will need something like this because we were looking at the trends and the idea of trunk base was kind of there and not many people were using it the two ideas kind of play hand in hand together
1: is trunk based necessary for feature flags to be as powerful as they can be or can you speak to maybe the different methodologies
0: yeah of course we did not use trunk base really like you, when we created this tool and you can still do it let's be honest with you can use any sort of branching techniques and, and still use feature flag. I think the true power and how you can influence this high-efficiency engineering metrics, it is more powerful with trunk base because we used to use the Git branches type of style that you have every branch separately and then you merge into master and then deploy master and used to have long-lived feature branches before. And even when you have that kind of a legacy style and you use feature flags, what I noticed is the branches lived less because the code was protected so you can merge those branches anytime. So instead of becoming a branch with a full name feature and then you didn't merge until you were done, that feature had a few iterations with different branch names because it was protected through a feature flag. So without knowing, I can tell you now retrospective, we were truly increasing the cadence of delivery within engineering and the rate in which we merge stuff. We don't know, how we deploy it. I can tell you now in retrospective. Now, when you move to trunk base, which we do here, how do you help your engineer to commit quickly to the trunk? And one option is well, if I can help her and tell them, well, that code is safe because it's behind the feature flag. You can do anything, push to the main branch anytime you want because nobody will see it until you say so. So that's when uh, I believe the superpower of using feature flags with trunk base is you're really accelerating to the extreme, what trunk base came to accelerate in the first place.
1: I equate it to just releasing the fear that developers have of, hey, don't worry, like literally what you just said, whatever you're working on is dark, it's behind a feature flag. Now, just a technical question on that is... In terms of scoping, you got to be careful just to get into the technicalities of what you put behind the feature toggle. Clearly, is there a best practice way of scoping your code so that you, let's use a simple example, if I have to modify a class, is that modification of the class then done inside of a feature flag as well? Or am I getting a little too technical on on the way I'm thinking about that?
0: It's a good question. I can try to answer a little more high level and there's one reality. One, nothing extreme is usually good. That phrase applies for anything in life. What we tell people when it comes to use feature flag is usually start placing feature flag as higher in the stack as possible and then moving towards as needed. The reason being is that if you end up changing, say, 10 feature flags, if your feature flag has at least two conditional, two possible states, it gets exponential. And if you're like me, that like to, when I use to write code, I like to test. Everything super well in every possible scenario, you start looking into very high complex testing scenarios that even if you need to run all the possible permutations that I test, it will slow something down. So, from my experience using this product to build a product, because we dog food split and split, and even working with customers, which I do a lot, I always recommend to go from up the stack to lower. It doesn't mean they cannot put something in a clause or even a the layer that you interact with the database. We've done that too, but we choose carefully when to do that more than the normal.
1: As you're integrating feature flags to keep it as high and as encompassing as possible. So in other words, turning a feature on or off in the literal sense of the word. It also gives this notion that you can test in production, right? The developers can now test their code in production. This does bring some thoughts for me around production databases, and how does one manage that?
0: That's a great topic, and it's probably is worth also clarifying the meaning of that, because it's easy to misunderstanding and, and even when we talk about testing in production, I know means we are trying to tell you, forget about station or UAT, just go to production and, and then test it. No, that's not it. Please, everybody, that's not it. Testing in production means that you still have all the testing phases you have, the unit tests, the station, say full stack test or integration automated test, but then you have one more chance. And that one more chance is that because that is protected in production, you can even test as you were a test user to see how that behaves. And I can tell you a number of times everything looks good in unit test, integration test, like a kind of full slow test suite that we have, but then we get to production something is different. See that because the data set, as you know, is just hard to reproduce in your local or staging or production has a different workload that's something slower and puts in evidence some anomaly or something so that's what we mean with testing production is we give you one more chance to see how that is going to look to your end user before your end user has the chance to engage with it so that is what i would like people to take away from what we mean by testing production
1: good and i think you told me an interesting story which i referred to i don't know if you can remember this but Someone who released something before they went MIA or they went...
0: Yes, that's the story <laughs> I tell everybody that joined the company because it's a true thing. I can't give a name because I even I told him that I, I use his name for my onboarding sessions. His name is Sterling and he was a front-end engineer back at RelateIQ. And he was, a, I think, the first one that he used the product that we built internally. And we have advised him to put one feature behind a feature flag. It was a long weekend coming up and we pushed the production on a Friday morning, because that's how we roll there. Some people say that we don't push on Monday, we don't push on Friday. No, we push every time we want. But the, we push the production, the site just crashed. 500 in front of your face. He was going camping soon after lunch. And last thing you wanted to do rollback, because rollback of the whole UI code would have been a back-end rollback, and who knows when you want to address. But because that was a bit behind a feature flag, just we're walking through these rudimentary UI that we built for ourselves of this homegrown feature flagging tool, and then we asked him to find the only feature flag in the system and press the button kill. That will revert the flag almost instantaneously. I say almost, is because it took 30 seconds to 60 seconds to pick up a change. It was like magic for him and for all of us, because the site came back up, talking about 2012, 13. and the site came back up within seconds. So if you imagine, the, the time to recover was almost instantaneous. No rollback required. He went on and did whatever he wanted to do, camping, and then came back on a Tuesday. because It wasn't on weekend. Fixed the issue while the flag was still killed. Pushed the production, and we pretty much rolled forward and just reverted the flag state to be on again. And that small isolated case changed everything for us because not only him, but his team and everybody else became an advocate of the technology because it was making us happy, really, because it was safe to deploy, safe to roll back, It gave us extra superpower.
1: This is what I love so much about this approach is the empowerment of teams, which reduces bottlenecks. It reduces this single point of failure idea. I mean, it it has to have an impact on the engineering culture.
0: I think it does. I recall mentioning to you as well that it's one of these few products that brings product and engineering people together. I can tell you, my co founder was director of product there, and he was heavy user of this homegrown tool. And the same thing is true at Split. PM can release code now because the engineers put the necessary flags or hooks in there. And because the PM is the owner of the feature they're working on, she or he determines when to release it. Yeah, you might say, well, what do I know about releasing code? Yeah, true, but they're getting accustomed to it. Any mature tool like Split, for example, will have. Approval flows in the same way that if you write a code, a review and approve and merge, do the same thing with feature flags. Someone writes it, someone writes a change of a flag state, and someone else approves it. Usually not the same person, obviously. These type of tools and processes really help us all be efficient and kind of increase what everybody can do. Not only engineers can release, to the PMs and other people can do it too. That's the that to genius of this. A few things I, I like about this product, or type of product is, is that it brings those people together.
1: Which everywhere I go, I mean the animosity or the tension that exists between product and engineering is sad. Yeah,
0: I'm trying to change that by giving them independence. At the end of the day, if you feel accomplished in what you've done and the value that you deliver, and that value is brought at least at this place, our customers is brought to you by this squad or group of people that are mixed between back engineers, data scientists, designers, and PM. They all operate independently because of this. And they get to decide when they release, when they don't, when they kill the flag. And they own that feature in the eyes of the customer.
1: And then, of course, the releasing can be progressive in the sense that you can release one feature to one group of people. Can you do geographic releases? You know, you can literally have the product be different for one group of people to another. The answer is yes. When
0: people talk about feature flags, you don't really necessarily have to talk about like an on and off state. There are intermediates. And there are ways to kind of reach progressively to the end state. And that's when you get into the targeting concept. Technically, you can do everything you just said. You can release a feature onto a percentage of the population. And you watch it. See how it behaved, how your database or any other indicators that you want to keep an eye on are behaving. And then progressively, you roll out to either 100%, or if you're a big company like Facebook, for example, it's not—it's common to release to a close to the end state, but you always have a control group. Let's say 99%, you only have that 1% that you keep an eye and see, see what's happening to the core indicators that you care about. Then you get into uh, extra dimensions. You can say, I want this feature to be enabled to my US population. Just because there are like maybe a regulatory environments for which you cannot release that to some other geography, and you can do that. Our product supports that today through what we call custom attributes or segments, which is kind of the word self-describes like segmentation. That's the beauty is like the targeting capabilities of a good feature flagging tool should be rich because that's w- what reality is. is that sometimes things are not simple. You can be as complex as you can be.
1: So. If- the thing that I'm wondering right now is, and this might get a little bit into the workings of Split. I have not used Split, so speak to me like I am making it up. But the simplicity of a web interface that effectively controls the runtime environment is that sort of a way to describe how Split works. Yes, let me give you a full pitch so
0: it's clear for everybody. Our product delivers feature flags through the cloud to you, and the way you as a customer, you integrate with split is by choosing, obviously by having an account, but secondarily, more importantly, by picking and choosing an SDK of your choice. We support many SDK and languages and even sub-frameworks within the language. And the SDK is a rules engine that creates the value of the flags in your environment, locally to you. So the latency or the penalty for using a feature flag should be negligible. Pretty much no difference that calling a function in, in Java or in JavaScript because it's all local. Now, when the SECN bootstraps or come online, that's a one-time downloading of the feature flag definitions that we deliver through our cloud and CDN network, and keep you updated through a streaming connection. So when you see a demo today of say, Split, when someone makes a change, we have a grid of ten by ten, like one hundred boxes, a change in color, shapes, and everything. And literally, if you blink, you miss the change. That's how how fast it is. But the, the takeaway is. Flags are evaluated locally to you from in-memory. The latency is negligible. We're looking at nano to microseconds.
1: That's great. So in other words, through the SDK, the state is downloaded or the the definitions, like you said. So that's sort of a bootstrap cost, but that's not a runtime cost.
0: Exactly. So to the point that you can, let me exaggerate the point, you can cut the internet cord, and you can still be evaluating flags at almost zero latency, sure there's no internet connection, won't get the update. But as, long, as soon as the internet connection reestablished, then you get the update if there was supposed to be a newsworthy update.
1: Okay. So, for instance, if I decide through your web interface that a certain feature should be turned off, I am modifying state. And in the production environment, there's some sort of diff or some sort of invalidation of a cache or something or something that triggers a download of the new state or what?
0: Yeah. Let me walk you through this. So you say you you know they need to make a change, either kill the flag or change the targeting. You go to the UI or use our public API, whatever you choose. And upon saving, assuming that you don't have approval flows enabled, upon saving, we notify the CDN network to wipe the existing state or at least flag it as it's stale. So our streaming connection service will notify all the fleets of SDK connected that there is a change. And either deliver through streaming or get it from the CDN okay. right away. Okay. That okay. all happened really fast. Some changes are delivered right away, like a kill operation, and we are moving more stuff towards streaming for just better user experience.
1: Wow, I did not think about it as a streaming. It just makes a better user experience. Yeah. The example oh. I gave
0: you of Sterling we back in the at the prior company, we had to wait up to 60 seconds because it was polling. Today, the same example, the killing operation will be immediate. We're trying makes... through streaming at pawn saving
1: on the UI. That's great. Again, I thought it was some sort of polling mechanism, but streaming makes a ton of sense.
0: AppDAM is very important to us. So we have both techniques to have a fallback because the delivery of a flag is, if not the most important thing we can do here at Split. And we can always keep on improving the techniques and having more fallback mechanisms for better to deliver the flags faster.
1: You're just going to have to bear with me for a few minutes because I'm stuck on something. And that is, is one of the ways you use the flag, for instance, can point to a different database connection? So for instance, I'm really struggling with migrations. So let's say I created a feature that adds a telephone number to like a first name, last name form. Obviously, there's a migration to modify the database, to take the telephone field. I'm all excited about it. And then as soon as my users start using it, they realize that the parsing of the phone number is screwed up. So we have to kill that immediately. If that flag gets killed, what happens to the field in the database? There's no silver bullet.
0: That question or that topic comes very often that database migrations are painful in general. But the best thing I can tell you here is, I mean, you said it right. You can use a flag to determine the consumption or not, the read operation. But I think prior to that, I would recommend to push a, a change to make sure that the first the code is friendly to that Felix ex- existing first. Then when I use it, that can be regulated through a feature flag.
1: Got it. So like you said, that just adds an extra layer of, the assumption is that, your standard testing protocols have addressed the parsing of the telephone number. It's just that if there's a, something that falls through the cracks, you just have this last layer of defense where you can turn that off, even though it might not revert the migration to the database. Correct. And of flags it,
0: really it. cannot revert the database change, but you can address through code what's being accessed or how yes. it's being parsed. Yes. Potentially, you can hide the parser through a feature flag. On, for the read path, per se. When we do migrations like this, we usually get more than one flag that sometimes controls the dark write if you want to populate things on demand and then controls the reads. So usually two or three flags are involved in an operation like that.
1: Is that a good question to ask? Are there types of flags? <laughs> yes, indeed. It's
0: a good question to ask. <laughs>
1: There's no science for this, as you know.
0: So you can say, one, I have a feature flag, that is a long-term versus short-lived or permanent versus short-lived. Examples of permanent feature flags are those that you can use for, say, paywalls or entitlements. That hey, you just swept your car. I'm going to upgrade you from the Teams package to Enterprise. And therefore, I'm going to enable a set of flags to your account. That's, it. That's okay. the best example. Another example for permanent is when you want to put the flags through areas of code that you want to use for risk mitigation risky endpoint or expensive endpoint you want to shut down in case your system is either compromised or slow. And you can imagine, at least it's very long and permanent. On shorts are things that you use, like example just now, on the migration. Once the migration is done and you mitigate the risk of consumption, the parser is okay, eventually that flag needs to be candidate for cleanup. And again, any mature feature flag like, like Split will help you through identifying when flags are not being longer engaged or used or when have not been changed for a while, and they tend to be kind of for deletion. Then you can separate the flag between like back and and client side. One, because sometimes you, you don't want to expose some things to the client side as much as you would do on, on the server side. And last, I would say there's a category around are flags used for just deployment versus flag used for experimentation. So a feature flag, I'm going to test a new idea that is, well, maybe this new flow can help me sell more of this particular item or more assets or more goods those are tend to be flags that are associated to metrics that you want to look for a particular outcome and we are slowly little by little also creating those concepts within within split to help the customers understand what type of flag they should be creating at any point in time because so the intent that they have.
1: Yeah is that the canary releases is that what that is canary releases.
0: In a way it is but for a canary release it's just a risk mitigation. You release something and then if you didn't break anything, you continue to expose that feature to so say up to until you get to 100% customer exposure. One example I can give you is that we've done that a lot, and sometimes things look good at 5% rollout, but when you reach 50% or even 80 or 90, you hit a critical point in terms of flow. That so you realize an example that happened to us a long time ago is oh we forgot an index. Yeah, 3% traffic, everything was okay, but then when you ramp to higher number, then small inefficiencies are put more in evidence. So you can use flags for a release, and usually you tie into more like a progressive rollout until you reach target.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking in terms of queue management, where the queue fills up faster than you anticipated, or these types of things. Exactly. You can have a
0: flag to shut down the intake so the the queue can clear before you add more.
1: In a way... If only I had a split subscription five years ago. Well, we were just ramping the product two years, five <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I'm sure we would have appreciated one more customer back then. So, In discussing the types of flags, is a service like split or feature flagging a way to manage subscription levels? Like you mentioned the different packages you can subscribe to, like the enterprise plan, the team plan. Is this a canonical way then to also manage what features are turned on and off? for customers based on their subscriptions it is possible and and some customers use us for that i think there's more
0: to be done for, for way to do it to do well but you can use that to enable a set of functionalities for customers under a particular package again there's more we can do as a product to make it yeah. really good for you to
1: manage that but today it is possible it doesn't sound like it's a and i've never actually heard of it being used that way but i I think what you're saying makes sense to me. It's sort of about how you model that. How do you find your plans and what flags are
0: associated to those plans? Again, there's more to do.
1: So not being a sponsor, me not trying to blow smoke up splits behind, me not being a fanboy, me just liking conversations with you. I do talk to CTOs who tell me they have a home-rolled Package or split or launch darkly is too expensive. Or why would I pay for something? And can you speak to that a little bit? Just, I mean, this is not a pitch, but when I talk to some people, find that the idea of paying for feature flags in some people's mindsets that doesn't make sense to them. Now, as you describe, first thing that comes to mind for me is the ability to log into a beautiful interface and have multiple, like you said, workflows authorization groups. Is that the gist of why one would pay for a service like this? Or is there a lot more to it that I don't know? The reality, even
0: if you go a little bit through memory lane, if you asked me that question seven years ago, I would have said similar question. I'd would, well, would you pay for a login company or log processing company? i why would I do that? If we yeah, can do that with cabana yeah. or something else. And now it's a no brainer for me yeah. because the capabilities well with a company that have several hundred people working on a problem, we we'll always surpass what you can do homegrown. We have things homegrown that eventually we replace with vendors. And the same thing we are seeing with companies using feature flags. The rationale are a few things. One, usually companies are a multi-language company, at least, you know, front end back end devices, if you have mobile apps. It's hard to have a homegrown solution that can extend to all those areas which is where your whole SDK, all the SDKs you have. Correct, yeah. We support at least 10 SDKs. We cover iOS, Android, even in the UI side of things. We not just have JavaScript for the browser, but you also have React and Redux SDKs, and there's one more coming up, and even Angular. So that's one one justification. The other one is, one, the rate of innovation that we can, new capabilities is much higher than you can do as a homegrown. As you grow and your teams require more things, then eventually, the person that owns a feature flagging tool will become a bottleneck, won't be able to add all the things that are required for that. And that's happened everywhere. Let's call it approval flows or integrations. We have more than 30 integrations right now with things that you want to extend a feature flag context to. That's a whole new topic to discuss. Things like approval flows, or let's get into A-B testing too, because like you have feature flags. Yeah, I have two cohorts. I want to try what's better if I'm running an experiment. Well, that's a new product in and of itself. Are you gonna run a, a statistical engine yourself that integrates a flag and create beautiful reports and help you democratize that? democratize that with your peers? You can. Then at that point, it's cheaper to use a product like ours that have a, a staff team of scientists and everything yourself. And that's when the economic of scale makes sense. And that's the reason why Converse Split have a free package and then a, a small Low tier package that you can grow with us uh, without feeling that you are wasting your resources or
1: money. Is that the unit of measure for you? Is load the number of requests, so to speak? I looked for a pricing page, I couldn't see one. There's uh, working on that. And monthly track
0: keys, like how many end users do you have using your product? It's usually a leading indicator as well
1: as seats. It's been pretty standard these days if
0: you compare vendors.
1: Wonderful. So tell me, Pato. CTOs, of whom I speak to a lot, who say to me, how can someone integrate, I guess, trunk-based development and feature flagging into, let's say, there's a monolithic code base, or let's say they've run really hard without this. It's a lot of CTOs are sort of in the Git Flow state of mind. It just seems to be like an unspoken agreement between people to just go with Git Flow, which in my mind is, is not great. Can you speak to, for a minute, the audience who's like, oh, I love what Pato said, where do I start? So the one thing I heard you say was, when you do feature flags, try and encompass a large scope or a go high level in how you're flagging. But when it comes to trunk-based development, what are the first couple of things that you like to see people sort of adopt in order to integrate this workflow into their products? And you also say a monolith. So
0: we can include the whole thing in the convo or take it separately because we went through that as well many years ago. One, if you have a monolith, you can do two things to move towards trunk base. Having done trunk base and the others is a no brainer for me. I wouldn't go back to anything that is not trunk-based anymore, even though there was hesitation within the company itself. So if you have a monolith, two options. One, like anybody does, start peeling off area of the monolith that haven't changed often and have a unit of domain per se, like domain decomposition. And put that into microservice and give some teams autonomy to iterate on that service alone. But when it comes to feature flags, the try before buy type of scenario here, so you can see the power of the two combined, the feature flag and trunk base, is work on the next thing that you wanna be working on and put it behind a feature flag. That would be the first recommendation. It's a way to slowly transition to trunk base because going on a monolith to feature branch to trunk base. I think you'll have a feeling that you're too exposed. And so well, how, what happens if, if I merge that and I'm going to deploy? But well, yes, but still, it doesn't mean they won't go through station. It will still go through station and then go to production. So whatever you test in station it can help you understand if that's, there's a bug or not there. But the fact of having that behind a feature flag, I think that will give you the peace of mind that you can still, even if you, the train left the station go to station production, you can still revert something and be safe that you can address it again and push again to trunk. I mean, we were lucky that we, one we built a feature flagging product and we used it for developing it itself. So we dog-footed quite a bit. And that, to us, really made it easy to transition to trunk base. We didn't start the monolith. We started with small services so people get acquainted, and the fear or the irrational fear that we had towards trunk base was mitigated quickly, pretty much. But the true speed, I think, is the two combined, the flags, in a trunk base, and you're golden. Assuming, that you trust your automatic testing tools that you have, the speed that your teams gain is unprecedented.
1: What I love what I heard was, and this actually fixes something for me, which is you don't have to go to trunk based first and then bring in feature flags. You can actually bring feature flags first to protect any experimentation that's happening at that level. That's great.
0: That would be my recommendation. I know it sounds like an advertorial thing because I own a feature flying tool, but the truth, I like to speak the truth here, and it really gives you a peace of mind and you gain speed. We experiment with some tools. I don't want to give names away, but when it comes to, you know, the, you know, I discussed the, the DORA metric for high efficiency and engineering. Using feature flags with or without trunk base, it really influenced, influenced the lead time for change. The wall time between commit to co-deploy because when it's behind the flag, then you don't need to worry too much. You can merge the branch or no branch, just push to, to trunk. And then that's when it gets deployed, that's when you stop the clock.
1: And what's amazing with that too is because the product owner or the PM is involved and has the power to turn these things on and off, not to mention customer support or account managers, I can understand why the lead time to deploy would be reduced because there's less... Meetings and talking and dates and estimations, there's just doing. Correct. Yeah. Let's bureaucracy. Let's, you don't run into the, oh, let, me, let me
0: merge this 300 commit feature branch into the main and then go figure what was wrong or like merge conflict. You don't have that because there's such a short time, big commit until you merge that the chances are the person that commits something in between, they're not going to conflict with you. And you are safe because I call it safe on behind the flag then that code ships quicker.
1: Yes, and now not to be conflated with the main branch and the state, the development branch and all that, right? No,
0: correct, correct. Usually the way I conclude this, and this is a phrase I really like, kind of summarizes what we just talked, is that if you really want to increase your rate of innovation, you need to decrease the chances of failure, or the risk of, for failure. Doing this this way, like fast and secure, is a way to reduce the failure and increase speed and therefore innovation. And I hope folks understand that because in the times that we live in, it's super
1: critical to outpace your competition, is to innovate fast and safe. So let's end, Pato, with just maybe CTOing this company. Can you speak to our audiences, consist mostly of CTOs at various stages with investment, team sizes, team budgets? Maybe can you give people some insight into where things stand with you as? CTO, co-founder of Split, maybe your top challenges? As you can imagine, I went through kind of the discovery myself there
0: and many CTOs too. Because the CTO in a tech company has different expressions and you choose your path. What I discovered and I felt comfortable doing is I'm kind of a blend between when I own a small team that we call Office of CTO or Octo for short where we look into a two three years horizon into the future, where we can innovate fast because in that horizon, we have no customers. It's like starting a company within a company. So I had the opportunity to take risks, try bold things and see where that lands and potentially feedback to product or engineering to take it over if we find success there. Or accelerate a technology discovery that product wants to do, but it's not there yet. So we can bring the future closer to them. I spent a lot of time and this piece is always true. The Office of CTO is only true as of one year and a half years ago. But what I always did as part of my role was to, you know, public facing through user conferences, through podcasts like this one, or any other expressions such as writing or participating in webinars or I also spend a lot of time with customers. I always tell the sales engineer, consider myself an escalation. Just because of being early here and building the foundation, I still can answer and, and speak for technological changes or definitions or architecture of the product. And I, I try to keep myself up to date because now we have hundreds of engineers writing code. It's, it's hard to stay on top of it, but the, I pick and choose what's the most important piece so I can always speak to that when customers require it. Some others, uh, CTOs, prefer to stay coding or taking a particular element and make it theirs. That's totally valid. And I've seen others taking more of a managerial role and having, say, engineering or even product and reporting to them. There are a few manifestations. I don't think there's anything wrong or right. You have to find your true passion and go with it or even and try it. And when it doesn't, just find someone that can help you out.
1: So in the office of CTO, do you have then a VP of engineering who is then running the product software delivery? Correct. So the VP of engineer owns engineering, owns
0: your career path as an engineer. He owns the delivery, the app time, and all of things related to the cadence of delivery and efficiencies, as well as budget. All of that is a full full job in and of itself. I've done it before and it's important. It keeps the lights running and the innovation and everybody excited about building the product they're
1: building. Now, in many companies, the VPE then, potentially at your scale, then just reports directly into the CEO. Do you have that model as well?
0: We have that model. I've also seen some reporting to the CTO. Yeah, it's just a yeah, choice. It's yeah. how you want to spend your time. i split the VPE reports to the CEO as well as the VPO product.
1: The VPE reports to the CEO and the VP of product? Or did you say the VP of product also reports to the CEO? Both of them report to the CEO. I appreciate that insight. I'm always curious. Mostly I see the VPEs of companies, I think, at your size, that they just report directly into the CEO. I've
0: seen also as companies grow, it's usually a game of headcount. But in the last few years, I've seen the role of chief delivery officer emerging as a sole head overseeing both product and edge. It's just a variation of that, There's mm.
1: nothing right or wrong. I just, I've seen it often in the last couple of years. So thank you, Pato. This is really fascinating, super insightful. Thanks for doing this with me. I hope we can meet or maybe on your conference circuit, maybe we'll cross paths. I'm sure we have the opportunity and uh, thank you for having me. I had a, a lot of fun doing this and even prepping. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pato. Cheers.